Now, today's event continues our series on the saints that is born out of our partnership with the Bolandist Society. And to help us remember on this feast day of St. Edward Campion and the English and Welsh martyrs, we are joined tonight by Father Sam Conadera. Father Sam Conadera is assistant professor of, of history at St. Louis University. He holds a PhD in history from UCLA, an MA in philosophical resources from Fordham University, and a BA in sacred theology from Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. He's the author of Ecclesiastical Knights, The Military Orders in Castile, 1150 to 1330. And Father Condera is a Jesuit of the USA Western Province, ordained priest in June, 2017. Father Condera, I invite you to unmute yourself and to turn on your screen. Good evening, and thanks for the introduction. So tonight's talk is entitled Friends in Heaven, Edmund Campion and the Martyrs of England and Wales. And as already mentioned, today is um, in the Society of Jesus, the feast day of Edmund Campion and the other Jesuit martyrs of England and Wales. Although tonight we'll be, all, we'll be talking about um, the broader historical context and some of the other participants in this mission. If we can take a look here, we've got uh, this idea of friends in heaven. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that more at the end, but friends in heaven is a quote from one of uh, Campion's, his most famous work, we call it Campion's Brag, but I don't wish to get ahead of myself here. Wanna begin by giving a little context about the origin of the missions. And we have to go back to the 16th century and the English Reformation. Now, the Tudor dynasty, which ruled over England at this time, um, buried its religious policy quite a bit over the 16th century and made England a rather tumultuous place in terms of Christian confession. Beginning with Henry VIII, who made himself head of the church in England, thus um, breaking communion with the Pope. But Henry VIII did not intend to bring about what we might call Protestantism in England. He wanted to keep Catholic doctrine, but be the sole head of the church on earth. Well, that arrangement was not to last, and his successor, Edward VI, though he had a brief reign, did um, begin the Protestantization of Christianity in England. And so he, um, he's the one who began, for example, the Book of Common Prayer and of worship in the English language. He was succeeded in turn by, by Mary, his half-sister, who, um, whom history often calls Bloody Mary because she attempted to restore the Catholic faith and did so at least in part through persecutions of people who'd been appointed during the reigns of Henry and Edward. But Mary died without an heir, and so the throne passed to Elizabeth I, another one, a, a daughter by, of, of Henry VIII by Anne Boleyn. Now, Elizabeth, when she came to the throne, had been um, more or less raised Protestant, and although at first didn't give clear signs of, of, of what her religious policy was going to be, eventually um, took a course of trying to establish a Church of England that was independent of the Pope and partially Protestant in doctrine and more or less Catholic in ceremony apart from the use of the English language. Now you can imagine all this back and forth over the course of these decades left a lot of confusion in England. 
um, a great many people, perhaps the majority, went along simply with whatever royal policy was going to be. But there were others who resisted these changes. And if you look at from the time of, of Henry onward, you'll see various episodes of, of local, sometimes sporadic, sometimes more, um, uh, more sustained resistance to these policies in the name of, of the Catholic faith. Now in 1569, a group of nobles in the north of, of England participated in something called the Northern Rising. It was uh, certainly against Elizabeth and, and her position on the throne, but it was also in favor of, of the Catholic faith. Now the Northern Rising failed in 1569. And um, at the same time, or, or just a little bit after, Pius, Pope Pius V, who was reigning at that time, issued his bull, Regnans in Excelsis, by which he excommunicated Elizabeth I. Now, his original intent was to do this so as to help the Northern Rising, but by the time the document was, was promulgated, the Rising had already failed. And it put Catholics in a very difficult position because Regnans not only excommunicated Elizabeth, but also said that she was deprived by her of her right to rule. So she was declared deposed more or less. Well, what that meant was that Elizabeth and her ministers could claim that Catholics were not only guilty of, of opposing the crown's religious policy, but were in fact enemies of the monarchy and, and potentially guilty of treason. And so at this point with the promulgation of Ragnons and the papal excommunication, so the situation got very difficult for Catholics in England, particularly for priests. It became a capital offense to be a Catholic priest in England. And so at this point where sort of organized, if you will, political resistance has, has uh, weakened or, or begun to fade, um, and at the same time, England's Catholics are in worse position and as a matter of course, deprived of the sacraments. There's a number of figures on the continent who are attempting to organize missions and ways to keep, keep the faith alive in England. One of them, William Allen, a priest who later was named a Cardinal, becomes a kind of a leader of the English Catholics, although by this time he's, He's in exile, he's on the continent. And he established a seminary at Dewey in 1568, whence we get the name of the famous Dewey Rems uh, translation of the Bible. And then somewhat later on, the English college at Rome, the venerable English college, which still exists. And at the same time, he's in contact with the general of the Society of Jesus, who at that time was Everard Mercurian, who agreed somewhat reluctantly to establish a mission of Jesuits to send to England. Uh, and he put uh, as first leader, as superior of the mission, a man by the name of Robert Parsons. And that Jesuit mission gets established in 1580. So there's a mission of diocesan clergy to England and there's a Jesuit mission to England. And so these men train for the priesthood and then upon the completion of their training, go to England in secret to carry out a Catholic ministry. Now, the Society of Jesus celebrates these martyrs uh, under the name of Edmund Campion because he's undoubtedly the most famous of them. He had been a star 
uh, a star young man at St. John's College at Oxford in his youth. He even in his mid twenties uh, gave an oration to greet Queen Elizabeth I when she came to Oxford. And she and her ministers were quite impressed by him and promised him uh, a long successful career in the Church of England. He did receive orders uh, as a deacon in the Church of England, but gradually in his study of the Church Fathers grew unsettled with that and decided that the truth lay in, in the Catholic Church. And so he converted. He comes to the continent and eventually enters the Society of Jesus. And after mission spent uh, several places, including uh, Prague and Rome, returned to England and carried out ministry in the Southeast and in the North. So he returns to England. He's, he's, he's still a known entity, so he has to be in disguise and, and under an assumed name. And he, starting in, in um, around 1580, is one of the first Jesuits to come back to England to carry out this ministry. Now, the thing for which Campion is probably the most famous to this day is something called, uh, that we call the brag, Campion's brag, which was uh, a message that he composed in half an hour um, at the, at the uh, inspiration, you might say, of one Thomas Pound. And it was circle, circulated first um, at the Marshalsea prison um, in London, but was rapidly copied and spread all around the city. And this, um, this is a document that's difficult to read without, without being stirred. It's, it's, uh, it's brief, it's to the point, it's, but it's written in um, sparkling uh, Elizabethan era English. And it's a challenge to Her Majesty's Privy Council, so to the Queen's closest advisors. And in it, Campion gives an account of his mission, uh, that he belongs to the Society of Jesus, that he's returned to England to administer the sacraments and teach the Catholic faith. He specifically disavows any interest in, in commenting on political matters or um, because the issue at this time was, did Catholic clergy recognize uh, Elizabeth as the legitimate queen? Well, he tried to steer clear of that question, but he also issued a challenge to this Privy Council concerning matters of faith. And, and said that um, he thought that the um, Protestant teaching could not stand up in open debate against Catholic teaching. And he said that he would gladly uh, engage in disputation with Protestant teachers before the Privy Council to, to make this point. Now, this document, of course, becomes known as the brag because some who read it, especially the Queen's ministers, were um, found it a, a bit on the cheeky side. But he ends with an appeal, and this is where the title of the talk comes from. He ends with an appeal to God to, quote, see us at accord before the day of payment to the end that we may at last be friends in heaven when all injuries shall be forgotten, end quote. So Campion issues this challenge um, during his ministry. It, it, it spreads quite rapidly across the country. And it is, as I said, the document uh, for which he is most famous today. Now, the trouble was that when you are uh, 
a wanted man, a hunted man, you are not likely to survive long carrying out your ministry. And that's exactly what happens to Campion. So he's eventually in the middle of 1581 captured. And keep in mind that um, carrying out ministry was, was dangerous. We'll talk a little bit more about the conditions of it later. But one of the big questions was, whom can we trust? Because uh, Elizabeth had a network of priest hunters and they paid and, and usually paid fairly well for information. And so it was always possible that the people to whom you had ministered could in time turn on you. And this is what happens to Campion. So he's captured in July of 1581. Now between then and the day of his execution in December, on December 1st of the same year, he's engaged in uh, a number of unpleasant activities. He's taken first to the Tower of London and for a period kept in the Little Ease, which was a room that was um, designed so that you could neither sit nor stand comfortably in it. Now, at first there was an appeal by, by, the, by the Queen's ministers and reportedly even by the Queen herself to, for him to set aside all this, this Catholic business and his priesthood and that he could be reinstated uh, in the Church of England. They had no particular desire to um, eliminate a man of such great talent and recognizing too that if, that if he turned, that would be an important propaganda coup. Uh, Campion refused those offers. But having refused those offers, he was subjected then to regular interrogation in the weeks and months that passed. He also was given an opportunity to engage in, in the public disputation of the faith that he had proposed. Now, as you might imagine, the, um, the, the Queen's ministers didn't want to leave the matter to chance. So he was not only deprived of any uh, reading materials or books with which to prepare, but he was also racked several times, that is subjected to torture uh, during the course of these disputations. And so it's rather difficult to make a convincing case for the faith without any resources under torture, but Campion acquitted himself reasonably well um, over the course of this time. However, there was not really any doubt as to what would be the outcome. And in fact, in November of 1581, he was convicted of treason and sentenced to die. And he was then, along with uh, other companions, brought to Tyburn, which is a place of execution, which, which now is, is, um, is located within the city of London, although at the, London was somewhat smaller than it is now. Anyway, he was dragged to Tyburn and, um, sentenced to execution by being drawn and quartered. I'm not going to enter into the, the explanation of what being drawn and quartered is. Suffice it to say that it's a, a rather unpleasant and gruesome way to die. And that would become the normal fate for priests captured uh, in the Elizabethan era. If they were convicted of treason, which they, they generally were, they were typically executed by being drawn and quartered. Now, uh, there are a number of accounts of, of the life and death of Edmund Campion. Probably the most famous mo modern one is by the uh, English writer Evelyn Waugh. That's a, an excellent introduction to Campion's life and death. And of course, Waugh writes brilliant prose. But there's also a very early source 
which the Bollandists have in their library. It's the Martyrium Edmundi Campiani, the martyrdom of Edmund, Edmund Campion, which was published at Louvain in the following year in 1582 by one uh, Estius, who was a biblical scholar exegete of the period. In any case, this is an exceedingly rare book. Uh, it's not absolutely unique. There's maybe uh, one or two other extant copies, but it's the earliest uh, account we have of his martyrdom uh, uh, available. And this is just one of many examples of the treasures that the Bollandists have in their library. Now Campion is a misfigure of, of, the, uh, of the mission and, and certainly in Jesuit circles in particular, but he's not by any means the only important figure. And in fact, we have to, to get some idea of the mission, we have to look beyond just um, the famous names and the famous martyrdom stories. And, and understand a little bit about what their activities were and how they went about trying to carry out a ministry in such difficult circumstances. Probably the most important thing that the Jesuits and secular clergy alike did uh, on the mission to England was celebrate mass. And so um, the mass was the most important thing of which English Catholics had been deprived. Those uh, Englishmen who refused to attend Protestant services, the services of the Church of England, were called recusants, and recusants did not um, accept the liturgical changes that had happened in England, and they wanted the Catholic Mass. And so priests, when they traveled around various places, found ways to celebrate Mass. That was the most important thing that went on. And usually also with the Mass would go preaching. Um, you're probably uh, familiar with the uh, desire that the priests keep it short and sweet during the homily nowadays. But in these times when mass was so rare and such a, uh, a fraught occasion, and when people needed um, to have their spirits lifted, there was a bit more patience for, for preaching. So mass and preaching went, went together, and it was something in which all clergy engaged. And then with that, also the hearing of confession. So Again, in these times, it was fairly common, in fact, generally understood to be the rule that one went to confession before receiving communion at mass. And so the, the priests who would travel around, when they'd come to a place where they could celebrate mass, come to a household, they typically also hear their confessions. And then the Jesuit missionaries also taught people to make the examine. Now the examine is a prayer that all Jesuits pray each day for, uh, as the name suggests, examining their conscience. And, and partly this is done in preparation for confession and then communion, but it's also a spiritual practice of knowing one's soul and being able to go over the events of one's day and see where one was faithful and responsive to God and one where when one was not. So this was something that Jesuits in particular taught to, to the Catholics whom they encountered. There's also, astonishingly enough, some ministry of the spiritual exercises, that is, the Jesuits did seek under difficult circumstances to give the spiritual exercises in, in un, unusual, um, in, in limited ways or in abbreviated ways to some people that they met. And it was not uncommon 
for men who made the spiritual exercise under one of these Jesuits to later decide to become priests or religious as well. Um, sometimes uh, the Jesuits came upon um, important people in the, in the course of their ministry. So for example, the, the priest Henry Garnet uh, began a friendship that lasted for a long time with William Byrd, who was the great uh, 16th century composer in England, whose Catholicism was tolerated because he was really good at writing music and he's produced some of the greatest compositions of the Elizabethan era. And then probably the most difficult, but in some ways um, most important ministry, well, not the most important, but certainly a significant one in the period was the, the um, production and distribution of literature. Because keep in mind that, that the 16th century is a time where religious controversy can be carried out in the way that it is because of the printing press and because of the relatively new availability of the written word on a mass scale. And so the Jesuits and secular clergy in England and Wales understood that uh, spreading literature in defense of the Catholic faith or, or literature to support the devout life, to support the faithful, was really important. And so they were able to set up uh, for brief periods, printing presses in a number of locations. Now these were things that were hard to keep secret. And so they, they sometimes got shut down and they lost them. But while they were in operation, it, it greatly aided their mission. One of the most important works that was disseminated in England during this time was Robert Parsons Christian Directory printed um, first printed in 1582. And this, uh, by the standards of the time, is, a, is fairly irenic in tone. It's, it's, um, it was a work about living the Christian life that was admired even by some Protestants, though the author was a, a Catholic priest and a Jesuit, because, um, again, it was not focused so much on the controversies at the time as, say, the works of Campion had been, but more on living living a holy and devout life. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that all this had to be done in secrecy. And so here you see an image of, of a priest hole. There are priest holes all over, all over England. Um, one of the most famous locations is, is a place called Harvington Hall. And Harvington Hall is, a, is probably our best example of a, of a major house, a Catholic house, the, where the proprietors made alterations to the structure so as to accommodate the clergy. And by accommodate the clergy, I don't mean make it comfortable for them, but rather to allow them to carry out their ministry and save their lives. So it included the creation of, of, of holes, of, of secret passageways, trap doors, um, the construction of secret chapels. So Harvington Hall has, has even more than one of these, in fact. Um, and, and this was done so that, that this ministry could be carried out in secret. Keep in mind, too, that um, some of these houses were, were fairly independent in the sense that there was a lot that could go on in them amongst the, the owners and their servants and so forth that would not be come immediately to the attention of the English authorities. So the, these sort of houses about which I'll say more in a moment 
were, were crucial and indispensable to the ministry. The other thing is that um, the priests, Jesuits, and seculars alike had to come up with disguises and aliases and um, trades that would allow them relatively free movement. So John Gerard, who's one of the Jesuits on the mission, um, passed himself off for a time as a falconer. And so he had a, he had a pet sort of hunting falcon. And so he would, and he presented himself as a, as a nobleman and certain nobles were known to be very fond of their hunting falcons. And so he would take the falcon around and, and then he'd, he'd have it fly off and then he'd walk around and ask people, have you seen my falcon? Has it come into this town? And the reason he did that was because if you were a stranger in a town, it was very likely that you, were, you would get reported to the authorities if people didn't know you as a priest. And so the falcon gave him more or less free passage because, oh, here, this guy's just looking for his lost falcon, when in fact, he's a priest, and this was an effective way to gain entry into towns. Um, now, even when the priests managed to evade the authorities, being in hiding was not a whole lot of fun, because it meant that, um, let's say, for example, uh, the, while you're at a house, the English authorities arrive to have the place searched. So you get into your hiding place and you might be stuck there for a long time, for days or even, even upwards of a week while they search the place and dig into the masonry and do all sorts of things and try to wait you out. And of course it was easier for the authorities to wait you out than for you as a priest stuck in one of these holes to wait out. If you didn't happen to have provisions with you ahead of time, you might be stuck in there for a long time um, without food, without means to relieve yourself. Um, briefly, I'd like to say a word about Nicholas Owen, who was uh, a Jesuit brother on the mission, who for about uh, 15 years or so uh, traveled with, with the, the priests and built priest holes and secret passageways and, and all sorts of brilliant hiding places. Um, all over, all over the country. Now he was eventually captured as well. He, he, got, he got stuck in a hiding place and had to come out after several days for lack of food. And when the authorities realized whom they had, they figured that they could break the network because he knew where, literally where all the bodies were because he built the hiding places. And so he was subjected to rather, rather unpleasant torture. He was um, hung from the ceiling by his wrists and, and weight was added to his legs to, to make that more agonizing. And he had actually developed a hernia from his efforts to, to construct these, these hiding places. And so they, they put pressure on that. Now, in the end, Nicholas Owen gave up just two names and those names were Jesus and Mary, which he uttered over and over again. Um, eventually the torture became too much and, and he died of it. But in any case, the, um, the fear, the discomfort, the, the whole secretive clandestine nature of the, of the mission must have taken an extraordinary toll on the men who carried it out and upon the people who risked hiding them. And we have to say a word about some of these, these folks who who were not members of the mission themselves, but 
whose work, who are counted among the martyrs of England and Wales and without whose, whose courage it would not have been possible. Now I have to say, to be perfectly honest from the outset that there were disputes among the clergy. So the Jesuits and the secular clergy did not always get along or see eye to eye on this mission, perhaps not surprisingly, but um, they disagreed over matters of strategy. Was England a mission country now, or was it a place where the faith was being restored? Would it be restored along the lines of 16th century Catholicism, post-Tridentine Catholicism, or more along the lines of the pre-Reformation patterns? And then there was also, to some extent, a national conflict among, among the English and Welsh. So the clergy did not always get along with each other, and that's important to keep in mind. But as, mentioned, as I said a moment ago, really the key to the success of this mission was the Catholic gentry. So people of, of the gentry refers to people of, of old, well-to-do families, not necessarily the highest um, rank, but, but, but people who uh, might not have had a formal title of nobility, which is rarer in England than it is on the continent, but who came from ancient families of means. And these people were the ones who um, took the risk of bringing priests into their home, who in some cases worked to spread or restore the faith among their neighbors, also at considerable personal risk. Um, one of the great figures among this group of martyrs is, is Philip Howard, Earl of Arundel, who uh, was converted from a dissolute life by the preaching of Edmund Campion and who was sentenced by, by Elizabeth to die from treason, although that sentence was not in fact carried out and he died of his imprisonment. But he's one of the many lay figures on this mission who, who gave their lives for the faith. And what's interesting in particular is the role that women play in the English Catholic mission. Um, the official records that the government kept and that the, the, the church kept, which the Church of England, um, indicate higher rates of recu recusancy among women. That is, refusal to, the, to attend the services of the Church of England and therefore of, of either semi-openly or clandestinely practicing the Catholic faith. Now, without them, the mission quite simply would not have been possible because um, not only were they often, uh, if not formally the heads of households, had an important role in running it and therefore providing for the clergy. But it was also the case that um, women were less likely to be, be punished in harsh ways than men under Elizabeth. And they were, um, precisely because women were taken less seriously in, 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 at a political and social level, it gave them sometimes more freedom to act. So lighter punishments and um, less official regard of women's behavior allowed them to carry out um, a great deal of activity on behalf of the faith. And our best example of this, or the, perhaps the one I'm, I'm most fond of is Margaret Clitheroe of York, who uh, was raised in the Church of England. Uh, she married a successful butcher in the city of York but by age 21 had, had converted to the faith and lived um, for the rest of her days, a remarkably devout life. Um, her husband said that, you know, he was, he was the best wife that could be had. 
except that she fasted too much and spent too much time praying, but still he loved her and, and she, was, she was the best of any wife, Protestant or Catholic. And uh, a number of her children also became priests and nuns later on. She was imprisoned several times for, um, for Catholic activities, for, for uh, being suspected of harboring priests, of speaking to her neighbors on behalf of, of the, the ancient faith of the old church. Uh, this did not deter her from her course of action. And in fact, after having, having harbored priests, she was informed upon, but by a child, the, the authorities seem to have questioned a child about the presence of priests in the house. And, and he indicated that there, they had been present. But um, now the testimony of a child was somewhat dubious, but Margaret decided that she was not going to put that child or any of her family or any of her neighbors through the, the difficulty of, of a trial. She didn't want them to be complicit in what, what she regarded as a sham. And um, she knew that the, her neighbors would end up being jurors. And so she decided not to enter a plea against the charges. Well, the problem with doing that is in England at the time, if you refused a plea in a, in a capital case, you were subjected to pressing as a form of execution, which meant that you had to lay on top of a, a sharp, with your back on a, on a sharp rock and then uh, heavy stones were, were placed on top of you and so you were pressed to death. Now, they did have some mercy on her in that uh, Margaret was pressed over very quickly with, with a lot of weight at first rather than the um, several days that this process could take. But um, in any case, she met a very unpleasant death and was um, one of relatively few women in Elizabethan England executed in this manner. So, but Margaret Clitheroe's house, you can still visit this in, in York to this day. And she's um, has a, a very prominent place among the lay martyrs in this group. Now, if we look to the canonizations, there is, they're very, it's very fascinating how this came about. Um, all told there's in the neighborhood of 360 people recognized as martyrs of England and Wales. And this is not all from the Elizabethan period. It goes up into the late 17th century, although Elizabeth's time was, was particularly um, uh, harsh for persecution. They're all in various stages of, of the process towards sainthood. And there's different numbered groups of them. Probably the most famous group are the so-called 40 martyrs of England and Wales who were canonized in October. 1970. Um, this is celebrated in England on May 4th, in Wales on October 25th, and as already mentioned, in the Society of Jesus on December 1st. Now, um, when the English bishops submitted these, these um, groups to the Holy See, um, they were canonized on the basis of, of just one miracle. There was a, a, do a dossier of many miracles submitted but um, the, the whole group was accepted on the basis of what seemed to me the most, what seemed to be to the authorities in Rome, the most likely and, and of the miracles. It was a, a miraculous healing uh, of, of a sick child. But in any case, um, Thomas More and John Fisher had been canonized 
without any miracles. And where martyrs are concerned, even in the, even the modern canonization process, miracles are not strictly speaking necessary. And so this whole group was canonized on the basis of, of one, one miracle. Now there was an interesting liturgical controversy that went along with these canonizations because um, in 1970, in 1969, 1970, Paul VI had um, first promulgated and then published or ordered to be published the new order of the mass, the so-called Novus Ordo Misae. And there were some, particularly in England and Wales who said, well, our ancestors and the people that you've canonized here in October, 1970 died in part for the sake of the, of the ancient Catholic mass. They didn't, they didn't like the new mass of the church of England. They wanted the old mass. And so this group of Catholics said, well, we'd like to keep the, the old mass too. And so uh, a petition was sent to Rome, but it was a very curious sort of petition. It was sent in the summer of 1971 by which time the organizers of the petition had secured the signatures of a great many um, public luminaries of public intellectuals, writers, and so forth, who made their appeal not in the name of, of theology or liturgy uh, as such, but in the name of culture. And uh, among the lines in this petition are the claim that the ancient mass belongs to universal culture as well as to churchmen and formal Christians. And by far the most famous signer of this petition was Agatha Christie, who, uh, if memory serves, was married to a Catholic. And the story goes that when the petition arrived in Rome and, and was submitted to Paul VI, he was reading it and said, ah, Agatha Christie being a name that he recognized and, and held in esteem and that petition was, was in fact granted. So um, the old mass began to be said or permitted to be said in England and Wales under these terms. And this is sometimes called the Agatha Christie indult. All right, we've had a lot of secret ministry and torture and all sorts of other unpleasant things. Let's end on a, on a feel good note. Friends in heaven, here we have this painting of the martyrs of England and Wales. And how do we think about the saints? We certainly think about the saints as being our friends in heaven. That is people who have recourse to, to God and to his friends, to his helpers, pray to the saints and ask them to be favorable to us. The saints are certainly friends of each other in heaven. They have already attained. Um, what, what Edmund Campion hoped for, that they be friends in heaven where all injuries shall be forgotten. But I'd like to point out another feature of, of this quote from Edmund Campion. These men and women, priests and laity, went about um, their very dangerous activities for which many of them met unpleasant deaths with a great deal of cheerfulness despite everything that, was, that they had to endure and everything that was going on and how hopeless the situation for them often seemed. And I like to think that part of their cheerfulness was the sincerity and truth of the desire that Edmund Campion expressed in the brag, namely that they desired the salvation of all, uh, including the people who were making their lives and the, the condition of the faith 
so difficult that when Edmund Campion said that he hoped that they would be at, at last friends in heaven where all injuries will be forgotten, he meant it. And that he thought, as did his companions, that that was a reasonable hope, that it was a good and holy hope, that one should do what one does on behalf of God cheerfully, because one hopes that it will benefit everybody, even the people who are making one's life difficult. So these saints, these martyrs of England and Wales, let them be our friends as they sought to be friends, even to those who persecuted them. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Father Sam, for a fantastic presentation. Um, and uh, I just want to make another announcement to our audience members that you we're entering now into uh, question answer time um, from the audience. And I'll, I'll be raising questions that are being posted right here through the, the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. So feel free to post any questions. We already have a number coming through. Um, Father Sam, a question from uh, John Kuntz. Um, he writes, uh, Newman's conversion, uh, another famous uh, sort of later convert, also seems to have been spurred, if not prompted by his study of the church fathers. Was there a tradition of patristic interpretation in England, specifically Oxford, that influenced Campion and Newman, or were these unrelated responses to that corpus? And perhaps you can refresh us on, on sort of what brought um, Edmund Campion um, into sure. back into the church. Right. So now I think it's to be fair and be ecumenically minded. The uh, the church fathers were not necessarily neglected by in the Church of England, nor by the great Anglican teachers of the 17th century or of the 19th. Um, Campion's contemporaries studied the fathers. Newman's contemporaries, especially Pusey, studied the fathers. So it wasn't as if um, they were ignorant or disregarded them, but they did vary in their interpretation of the fathers. And Campion came to the conclusion, as did Newman, that the, um, the attempt of the Church of England to, to articulate a middle way between Catholicism and, and Protestantism was not, was not true but was also not faithful to the fathers and could not be sustained. I can't tell you off the top of my head exactly what passages Campion read that, that were, were especially compelling to him. But keep in mind that a lot of Reformation era controversy um, surrounded the nature of the mass and the sacraments, as well as uh, the universality of the church. And so part of the conviction that, that, Campion comes to is one, that the mass is what the Catholic Church thought the mass was, rather than what it had become in the confessions of the Anglican Church. And also that the church was not limited to a single kingdom, a single nation, but that was truly universal. And that's, that's a closely related point. Um, if you wish to look for further reading on this, Campion published a treatise that, that articulates more fully his theological convictions called the Decem Rationes, the 10 Reasons, which is, is a series of arguments appealing to scripture and the fathers on behalf of the Catholic faith. And that might give you a uh, better insight. I believe it's been translated from Latin and that you can find it online. And we actually have a recommendation from an audience member uh, that if you visit Stoner Park, there's actually a permanent exhibit 
um, in the house right next to a false chimney behind which Campion would hide from the, the authorities. And we have it attested that, it, in fact, the 10 reasons were written there. Um, and this is by a descendant from the, um, the Stoner family. Um, ah, then we are honored by their presence. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming. Um, so a, a question uh, from Daniel um, Mascarenas. Um, were there any efforts at diplomacy between the Pope and the Queen to end the persecution? And then a, a sort of a, a related question to that, would the Catholic, this is from Luis Carlos Ayala, would the Catholic persecution under Elizabeth had been different had Pope Pius V not issued excommunication and deprived her of the right? So that to was rule. a hotly debated issue at the time. So William Allen, um, if I understand, who was kind of the leader of the English Catholics, wanted the excommunication. Philip II, who was engaged in all manner of diplomacy against Elizabeth, was opposed to it. And, and most of the people who were opposed to the excommunication did so precisely for on the grounds that life would become more difficult for the Catholics if it was issued. And that's in fact what happened. Now, the one interesting question is if the Northern Rising had succeeded or not been such a dismal failure, would things have turned out differently? That is, Reignons might've been seen as, as a success. But um, perhaps the mistake that Pius V made was to suppose that um, his excommunication and, de and deposition of her meant as much in England as he wanted it to mean. In other words, by, by the, you know, this is decades after Henry has already broken with, with Rome. And so it didn't mean a whole lot to, to England, you know, the general run of Englishmen by this time. In fact, it was more fodder against the Catholics. And even among Catholics, one of the questions they tried to avoid answering was, do you accept uh, Elizabeth as your queen. Some of them, including some of the Jesuits, said they did recognize her as mm -hmm. queen. How honest of a reply that is in view of the Pope's excommunication is a, is a very sticky question. I mostly avoided some of the, the political questions in this talk, uh, you know, lest we get away from the fun things like secrecy and torture and all that. But um, I don't, I'm not enough of an expert on papal diplomacy in this period, but um, Elizabeth and her ministers lived in fear, which was a reasonable fear of plots against her. Now, I don't have any evidence that the Pope was directly involved in any of these, but this is also the period where the kind of, the Catholic boogeyman becomes, a, and, and, and the, 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 especially the Catholic priest boogeyman becomes a, a stock figure in, in a, English literature and imagination. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we did have um, a John Gira, a fellow Jesuit, who thanks you for ending on a feel-good note, but uh, wants to get us back to some of the more gruesome, um, oh, exciting good. parts. To hear that. Um, so, can you tell us some of the details about Campion's torture and death? Um, which you find credible from the various sources you mentioned or others. So I just like to point out at this juncture that you see how Jesuits are always sabotaged by their own. I try to do something feel good and, and this young man gets it back on the, on the gruesome track. So being Tron and quartered meant um, that you were stretched, that you were racked, that your, um, your uh, entrails were removed 
but while you were still alive and, and thrown into uh, a boiling bucket of water, that your privy parts were, were cut off and, and, and added to the mix. And then after your death, your body was chopped up into pieces and, and nailed to the four corners of, of the gates of the city of London or used in whatever manner Her Majesty saw fit to use them. Um, that's a pretty stand, there, there was nothing special about this for priests. In other words, this is a, a punishment for high treason. Um, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, you've seen a, a dramatized version of, uh, of this punishment. Um, again, I was trying not to dwell on those details, but, but here we have it. So it was not a fun way to die, just like being pressed was not a fun way to die. Many of these men met, ex met exceedingly pain and women met exceedingly painful deaths. Um, thank you for that, um, for taking us deeper into the darker parts. Oh, yeah, um, no, my pleasure. Um, we have a question that sort of uh, is, is moving back towards the lighter, um, but, but staying with martyrs and, and taking us a little more at, for a, a sort of cross-historical comparison. Sure. Uh, do you see any similarity with the martyred Catholics in Algeria, for example? This is a question from Marilyn Bousset, who says mostly... Trappist monks, one of whom left a letter hoping for a happy reunion in heaven with his anticipated murderers. Um, she writes, it seems that this might be an attitude that we all need to have. But uh, in, your, in your readings uh, more broadly, have you encountered this similar friends in heaven sure, motif? Sure. Mm -hmm. So you do see this. Again, it, it depends on the individual. It depends to some extent on the period. But very often, praying for one's persecutors, following the example of Jesus, following the example of Stephen, the proto-martyr. This is a common thing that we see. Now, some, some don't put so much emphasis on this. And in fact, look, Campion has plenty of polemical talk as well. These things aren't, aren't mutually exclusive. But I'd say that, that very often in, in the lives of the martyrs, you do find this praying for one's persecutors, or even in, in, in sort of unusual ways, showing them kindness. So um, Thomas More makes a joke to his executioner, asking him to make sure that he, he doesn't miss. He's got a short neck. Um, Miguel Pro, who's the martyr of, of Mexico in the early 20th century, he comes out and, and kindly pardons his executioner, says, they didn't particularly want to shoot him, but he said, no, you've got to do your job and, and he forgives them. And so you do often see this sort of cheerfulness um, in the saints even, and sometimes especially as they go to their deaths, because in a way then the, the uncertainty of, of that they live under or the being chased around and so forth is gone. And, and um, kind of that serenity sometimes comes to the fore. As for having that attitude, you know, I certainly don't have that disposition and, and maybe someday I will, but in any case, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the things that most astonished the, the world of the Roman Empire, the manner in which the Christians typically went to their deaths. And it's something that continues to astonish even the persecutors of the martyrs to this day. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak then to, um, and this is a question from Gerald Nora. Can you comment on the relative delay in the canonization of the most prominent 
martyr, Edmund Campion. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I don't, um, I didn't go deep with his canonization, but it's important to keep in mind that the idea of in the period, so, so papally directed canonizations are a feature of the second millennium. And it's important to keep in mind that that process has typically been with, with notable exceptions, but has typically been slow and painstaking that the, the church has traditionally been quite circumspect and cautious about canonizing people because there's a desire to wait to see if the cult lasts. Like, is there, is there, are there people praying to this person? Are there evidence of miracles or, or other things associated with, with, um, with a cult? Are there, um, is there other information that comes to light about the person who gets canonized that would be reason not to canonize him or her? And um, there's even figures, used to be figure, a figure in the process called the devil's advocate, whose task was to try to prevent the person from being canonized. Now, in, in, in more recent decades where we have lots of canonizations and they happen swiftly, it's, uh, that's maybe become more our expectation, but that's not typically how um, even the papal canonization process has worked for most of the second millennium. So the exception really is the swift canonization. What's, what's more normal is that it take a long time. So um, Tom Brown um, asks, um, or he writes, if memory serves, the Protestant movement endorsed the translation of the Bible into the vernacular and providing it to the faithful, while the Catholic Church of that era resisted that movement, you mentioned the influence of the printing press. And of course, we all think of, you know, to the Gutenberg Bible and other. Um, can you speak to um, some of the materials that would be, would have been created and distributed to the English um, people and what types of literature would those materials include? You've already mentioned some of this, um, but perhaps right. you can um, sort of. That's a great question. I, I couldn't give you an inventory of, of materials, mm -hmm. but I could say things like, um, so we've mentioned, so the, I mean, the brag was copied by hand. Uh, Parsons directory was, was, was distributed, uh, was printed and distributed. They would have been for the most part, um, tracks are big in this period. That is things that give you an explanation, a, 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 an easily digestible explanation of some aspect of the faith and or tracks or pamphlets against somebody else. So you come up with a pamphlet of things, why the Church of England is, is, is false and has broken with the faith, or you get, um, you know, this is also the great era of catechisms. So it's in the 16th century that Protestants and Catholics alike start issuing and, and, and spreading far and wide catechisms. Um, and then you would have had devotional works. So Parsons is a devotional work. Um, you know, the works of Ignatius, or I should say the works of the society, would like the spiritual exercise and those things would probably not have been distributed because uh, the society in that period increasingly tries to limit distribution even within the order. But they would have been things um, aided mostly at giving basic instruction in the faith or against errors or helping people to live the devout life. Unfortunately, off the top of my head, I can't give a, a catalog of actual titles and materials. Can you speak? I, I mean, it's not lost on me that, you know, this is effectively a question about technology and the role of technology in evangelization. 
And we're making use of technology right now in a way to reach people at a time when, uh, I mean, there's not persecution, but there's certainly limits to the sacraments. There's limits to engagement with other people. Um, can you speak to the relative importance of technology in this time and, and maybe contrast it to the fact that it, it's, it's ultimately to the witness of the martyrs that we're looking sure. to and yeah, not necessarily. So to put my cards on the table, I'm something of a Luddite myself, mostly for lack of talent. We're grateful for you being here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mostly for lack of talent rather than on principle. But I guess I'd say this, without without certain kinds of technology, without um, the printing press and and the means to produce these materials, without the skill of, um, say, a guy like Nicholas Owen, who who was a master tradesman, a master builder, without the, cl- the cleverness behind the disguise, without all sorts of kinds of technology and skill that is not per se derivative of the faith, this mission would not have been possible. And so you couldn't have, it would not have succeeded if you had a bunch of, well, Luddites like me running around trying to get things done. Like these people were good at what they did and they needed all those skills to make things happen. Now, of course, in the end, um, and the end, the faith is, 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 is not primarily a matter of, of tech. It's primarily a matter of, of faith and charity and the virtues and, and all that, and, and courage, which these people had, had in, in significant measure. Um, so certainly they knew how to, how to order means to ends. They had very ingenious, clever ways of doing that. But all these men knew, and, and <clears throat> with of very few exceptions. These men who went on the English missions, secular and, and Jesuit, they died. They mm-hmm. expected to meet uh, an unpleasant end. They even joked about this together when they're back at the English college or in Dewey and all these places. So um, I would say this, technology can do a whole lot of great things, including this webinar, um, but it, it, it uh, it can't substitute for any of those things, um, but it can certainly aid people with faith and ingenuity to do to do their job well. Thank you. Um, and uh, how did the Jesuit mission in England go after Campion's death, and how long did the mission last? So, um, one of the adjustments they have to make after Campion's death is to try to get better at disguising themselves, and two. One of the other questions that arise, and this is a this is a messy one, and I'll probably regret bringing it up. Um, the whole question of mental reserve, when you are asked if you are a Catholic priest, are you allowed to not answer the, that question in a straightforward way? So this is where the whole accusation of of Jesuitry, of of clever answers to things that don't tell the truth, get in. So this actually becomes to some of these guys a matter of conscience. But you can understand why they didn't want to train these guys and, and send them off to die right away. Now, the, the Elizabethan period um, is kind of the most intense persecution, although after the gunpowder plot in 1605, when a group of Catholics not very intelligently tries to blow up parliament, when that mm-hmm. fails, there's a big time crackdown on, on priests and, and they get subjected to this. The last of the of the of the Martyrs of England, Wales, I think dates from 1679. 
So it's, it's a later period at which time, um, for the most part, the mission's vigor of the earlier period has come to an end, but there's still a worry that the, um, the later stewards are going to try to reimpose Catholicism. So Charles II is said to have, have uh, converted on his deathbed, whereas James II, who was ousted in the glorious revolution, 1688 was openly a Catholic. And sometimes when these guys married French wives, for example, there was concern that through their wife, there would be this influence. And so the fear, the fear around Catholic clergy and, and seeing them as enemies of the state extends um, late into the 17th century, even if by that time, there aren't as many, there's not as uh, enthusiastic an attempt to hunt them down as there was in the um, in the Elizabethan era, but yeah, the, the missions and these efforts go on through the 17th century. The in the 18th century, the penal laws start lightening up a bit, but it's really not until the 19th century that the Catholic Church is able to reopen her doors and establish dioceses again, and that's the period of of Newman and the Oxford movement that we talked about. Uh, uh, a moment ago. Um, so with this eventual lifting, do we ever see any contrition? We have a question um, uh, from anonymous, anonymous attendee, um, but has there ever been a formal apology or expression of regret from the British royal family for these martyrdoms? I can't answer that question. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. I remember running into, where was this? I forget, I was a tourist somewhere and ran into some people, some Brits who were, and I, somehow we got talking about camping. It might've been when I was there last summer and, and I was saying, you know, they, these guys died and all this kind of stuff and that I was a Jesuit and they're like, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I think among I think among most people it's sort of oh among a lot of people it's hard to understand what all the fuss was about. I mm -hmm. uh, don't quote me at well all this is being recorded. I'd be pretty surprised if there was any sort of formal apology because keep in mind, look, I'm not going to defend the regime here, but this is a period in which there's an attempt now to pull apart or at least to distinguish a little bit more clearly what belongs to the ecclesiastical sphere and what belongs to the civil sphere. But these are very closely intertwined things. So, you know, should Elizabeth have, have Protestantized or further Protestantized the Church of England? You can make a case against that. But you can also say that she had a reasonable fear from at least some of the Catholics in the country that that they represented a threat to her throne because in fact they did. But I don't, I don't, I haven't followed the modern history of, of, of the, the British monarchy's response to any of this, so I can't say. Um, in your, you've already mentioned, you know, a certain, um, that, that, that people don't quite have a grasp or understanding of this in your own travels to England. And, and this is a question coming in part uh, from Connor Edmund Hardy. Um, could you comment on the influence of the martyrs at all in recent current culture in England? Um, yeah, did, so for example, I, Chesterton or Tolkien sure. have a particular devotion or mm, others? 
I can't. So I've spent very little time in England. I would not wish to pre present myself as a, an expert on matters English. Uh, I did, however, get up to Stonyhurst College in Lancashire, which is which is the descendant uh, of the co of a college founded on the continent by Robert Parsons. I mean, this goes way back, and this was established um, actually in England uh, in the 18th century. I think technically the penal laws might have still been in effect. Stonyhurst is a really fascinating place. I mean, I felt like I was in what had to be one of the, you know, almost the center of, of, of what remains of the faith there. And um, one of my Jesuit friends is not only attended the school, but grew up in its vicinity. And you can see how, how the martyrs and the whole, the history of that school and, and, and Newman really runs deep in in those Englishmen who've who've kept the faith and and the martyrs are kind of um, I think of them as kind of a bridge because some of them hearken back to to the church in England before before all the Reformation all this kind of stuff but they're also pivotal figures when um, when the faith becomes conceived of in that country as something un-English or, or, or against the English. And keep in mind that it's, England is really the lone Protestant country that becomes a major colonial imperial power for, for centuries to come. And so there's a sense, um, the, 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 the English Catholics I've spoken to, and that's not a long list, there's something, um, a sense of, of tragedy about about the whole affair for the country, and that um, although the martyrs did not succeed in reestablishing the faith, that they're some of the first people to bear witness, not only to the faith under persecution, but of, of what a tragic turn of events that was for England. So we're, we're now coming to the close of our time. So uh, Father Conadera, I'd ask um, you know, we, we never have time, of course, to address all the questions here. Our conversation comes to a close. Where would you suggest people go next if they want to learn more about Edmund Campion, about the English and Welsh martyrs? Um, sure. Are there particular well, translations of the brag you recommend? Where should they go next? Well, first of all, I have to make a little plug of my own. If you're in St. Louis, you should stop by the Catholic Studies Center uh, in honor of Edmund Campion on the St. Louis University campus, where uh, we're quite devoted to him. But if, if you're looking for further reading, the Bragg is available online, both in its you know, 16th century English text with all the spelling differences and in modernized versions. Um, you can read The Life of Edmund Campion by Evelyn Waugh. I think that's excellent. One of my fellow Jesuits, uh, Robert Scully, wrote a book called Into the Lion's Den which is about the Elizabethan mission. It's excellent. There's a, also a book, which, which is very good, but also has a great title, God's Secret Agents, um, which is about, about this mission. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there you can go to. Um, other Also, there was a great poet I meant to mention, Father Robert Southall, who was one of these martyrs, but also one of the great poets of the Elizabethan era. You can look up not so much for history, but but he's got this poem, The Burning Babe, which is about Christmas. So coming up, that's seasonally appropriate. Uh, there's a great deal of material that one can find, but that's where I'd suggest starting.
Could you just say, since it was one of our questions, just a little bit more about um, St. Robert Southall? Oh, um, gosh, let me think. Um, well, he also, off the top of my head, I'm trying to recall his biography. He also is, is captured and martyred, but he's left to posterity um, a good deal of poetry, most of it in English, although he also had some, some Latin poetry. Um, pardon me, I didn't prep this part of the talk. Do you, you have anything to throw in there? No, I wish, I wish. Uh, okay. uh, this um, is not at all my area. No, so I think I, though that we'll, we'll take your recommendation of the poem. Uh, can you say it one more time for those the, who the have- The Burning Babe is what it's called. Excellent. Well, I think that's where we'll get to know him through his work from yes. here on. Um, well, Father Sam Conadere, thank you once more. And I should announce that uh, we're not just grateful to have Father Sam here as a presenter, but also for helping to organize this series going forward. I'm grateful to the Bolandist Society. There was a question about whether their works are digitized. They aren't, but you can help financially support them today to work towards that effort. We'll post a link in the chat for that. Um, I'm grateful to the Bolandist Society and America Media for helping to make this event a success. Um, thank you once more, Father Sam, and uh, I'm wishing you all a wonderful rest of this feast of Edmund Campion and the English and Welsh martyrs. Thank you and God bless. Thank you very much. Take care.